Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. You know, it's often said that the world today, uh, the Western world, America and Europe, are under the control of money power. And this, of course, is true. But what does that mean? Isn't it always the case that men with money, that the rich, are able to dominate society? Isn't it always true that having money makes you stronger and more powerful than those that don't? Well, if you've ever thought of you know, a, a collapse scenario, uh, a, uh, the survivalist idea of the, uh, what do they call it, the boogaloo, things breaking apart and there not being any government, not being any police, no army, well, what happens then? Does money help you? Well, maybe a little bit. You know, if you have gold stocked up, maybe you can pay people. But if you're a, a great financier and society collapses, any man or any gang of men with guns probably is going to be able to take what you have. So in a way, violence is able to trump money. But yet today, in, in our state of, of civilization, we see that money power is able to beat violence. No, no person is able to exercise violence in such a way as to beat somebody who has millions of dollars. It just is not possible. So I want to discuss today some other ideas from Oswald Spangler. I talked about Spangler about a month ago, and I, I traced out the basic concept of his political philosophy. And I've been thinking more about it lately, and I wanted to answer from Spangler's point of view how we got to where we are today, how we got to uh, the position of where Europe and America have been for really the last 200 years of the dominance of the financial elite over society, and then to show from Spangler how you get out of it. And indeed, Spangler would argue that it's inevitable that you're going to get out of it and that a new sovereignty will emerge, a new sort of king or an emperor has to emerge out of the financial out of the uh, a couple hundred years of financial dominance. That's just it's inevitable because of the very nature of financial power itself. So in this lecture, I'm going to draw on mainly the uh, four chapters from the end of the second volume of Decline of the West. So that's chapters 10 through 13. Uh, and also a little bit from Spengler's last work called Hour of Decision. So the main thing that Spengler talks about that affects or, or explains the uh, dominance of money power today is the development of classes in Europe since about the time of Otto the Great, since the 900s AD. And I'm not going to, or I'm sort of paraphrase Spangler the way I, the way I understand how these classes develop. And then from there, I'll, I'll, so I'll talk about, you know, the nobility, peasants, and then the priesthood. And then how does a, a merchant class, a middle class, a, a burger dumb emerge from, uh, from the original two or three estates, uh, classes. And then, uh, from there, I'll talk about money power and how money power is broken down. I'll try to draw some analogies to Greek and Roman history to really illustrate it. But the way it works basically in Spengler's mind is that early on into society, we think about like the, the, the very fall of Rome. Think about Western Europe in about 450 AD. 
the Roman government's still there. It's really tottering in the West. Uh, barbarian tribes, Germanic tribes, Goths, uh, Vandals, Swaby, uh, Franks, Salamani are coming into the empire. And you've got various barbarian bands. You've got Roman military units kind of wandering around, maybe still following orders from the state, maybe not, maybe cutting deals. In a situation like that, where the central power has totally broken down, it's really the closest thing we have uh, historically to like a real collapse scenario, uh, the way the, the, the Boogaloo, uh, the Boogaloo happened in, in 450, 470 AD. And what happens is the very primitive formation of a new of new societies is really just gangs of armed men. It's the most and you think of it's kind of like in the modern world, mafias or uh, MS-13 or any little gang of armed men is able to exercise power, especially when there's no central government, no strong army to crush them. And people need security. People need uh, a way to protect themselves and a way to go about their lives, a way to um, you can't farm and be productive if somebody's going to come and kill you and take your your food. So the first thing that happens is you have a sort of emergence of little clusters, like a, a, an armed man and his retinue, a count or a duke, we would say in sort of medieval terminology, and he is able to establish himself on a on a piece of land. What then happens over the centuries? We're really glossing through things here. We're not. Speaking just of the 400s, now we'll, we'll, we'll skip into the, the 700s, the 800s. Those counts and dukes all kind of have their, their little entities, their political entities together. And among them, there are ones who have bigger amounts of land, more men, they're more powerful. They tend to emerge as kings. But it isn't quite the way that you'd think of it in a truly unified nation state. Because a king isn't a despot. Uh, he is the first among equals among these other warlords. And so the way he has to exercise power is sort of getting a consent from his counts and his dukes to rule. They agree that, all right, well, you're the strongest. We acknowledge you as the leader. It's in all of our mutual interest to work together. So I'll become your vassal. The kings then uh for a while that 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 situation prevails you think of the holy roman empire is the, the the great example in western history of a structure like this where it is decentralized or it's centralized but decentralized there's an emperor like Otto the great or um barbarossa who is acknowledged by all of the princes and dukes as being the top man but all of those men under his immediate vassals all of the men under the princes are each loyal really to the prince. And so you go from having a situation, uh, think, think of all power as sort of a pyramid. You've got the emperor at the top, and then you've got these dukes and counts underneath him. Well, each of those dukes and counts has a little mini pyramid under him too. But the way that the nobility comes into being and becomes a political factor, an important power within the society, is that those counts and dukes start to recognize that they have a common class interest among each other and against the emperor. So we see this in the Holy Roman Empire, where by the time of Barbarossa, Barbarossa spent a lot of his time just managing his his uh, his vassals. 
he had to play one in order to maintain his power as emperor he had to play his vassals off against each other um henry the lion in uh, saxony was sort of uh the bet noir the uh the black beast of uh barbarossa he was always competing with with henry whatever henry henry was going off and fighting his own wars and not listening to the emperor and the emperor really didn't have a means of reining him in i mean he could try to play other other uh potentates off against henry but really henry kind of could do what he wanted to even though notionally he had to do whatever um frederick barbarossa told him what happens is that you know barbarossa was able to hold things together but you look a century later, you look after the death of Frederick II, uh, about 1250, and the emperors of the Holy Roman Empire after Frederick were no longer able to keep their vassals together. And you'll see a, a similar, and Spangler points this out, I mean, you'll see similar developments in France and England. Um, you think of the Magna Carta. This is the great example in English history of the nobles getting together and realizing, you know, what, we have common interests against the king. We as nobles, we're not going to be pushed around by King John. We can get together, force him to sign a deal with us and acknowledge our rights. And so you have a period in history. And for Western history, this would be from you look at uh, the Holy Roman Empire after after 1250. Really, the nobility was in charge. The emperor was no longer uh, powerful for hundreds of years after that. Uh, in England, it's about the same time. It's 12, uh, 1215 is Magna Carta. And the nobility was was able to exercise a great amount of power, and really the king had to govern with their consent. So what then is the nobility? What defines them as a class other than their common interest in wrangling power out of the king or out of the emperor? Well, Spengler points out a few things about this class. He calls the aristocracy, the nobility, the first, the uh, the true the main estate it is the the first estate i mean I, I know french revolution first estate priesthood second nobility third is peasantry right but in spangler's mind the first real estate to emerge the first group of people who have class interests are the nobles and they start functioning as a class as distinct from a independent political body they're not like forming a new nation they're not trying to break away they're just trying to assert their rights as men of honor as nobles within the uh, state structure. Of course, you can't have a nobility without having a peasantry. And Spengler draws a number of interesting um, characterizations of both classes. And I'm, I'm sure he's not the only person to say this, but with the nobility and the peasantry, these two groups of people are very in common because they have a, a uh, a common idea of life they're very practical minded people both of them peasants and aristocrats tend to be very good at thinking about uh how they need to live what they need to do they're very fact-oriented people they're not really interested in big grandiose abstractions jump ahead real quick and you think well isn't everybody like that the the contrast to the priesthood or to the uh, peasantry and the, the nobility is the priesthood a priest is someone who isn't really interested in practical matters. They are very inter interested with great abstractions, great truths of the universe and of, of morality of God. And so you see this throughout 
all history, but Spanglo talks particularly about Western Europe. This conflict of interests that emerges after, um, particularly after um, the establishment of the nobility, you see this con this conflict between the priesthood and the nobility. They're both struggling for power in two different ways. The priesthood wants power. I mean, think of the, the conflicts between the popes and the, the German emperors because they have this great truth that Christianity should be united under the pope. And the emperors and the dukes and the princes, mainly, mainly the nobility, wants to preserve their rights against the claims of religion. And you, I mean, you can think of um, the investiture controversy where the Holy Roman emperors and the popes had to argue over who got who had the right to appoint bishops because before the investor controversy the emperor had the right to appoint bishops just like he had you know think of the roman empire the roman emperor wasn't letting uh saint peter or well later on uh after christianity he wasn't letting the successors of saint peter appoint their own bishops that would be absurd but in uh in the middle ages because of the relative weakness of the central state because of the weakness and ability, you had this, this back and forth between these two different classes. Now, what else characterizes the nobility? And there's two concepts that Spengler talks about. He talks about being in form, and he talks about having race. Now, I'll start with having race because it's a, I think it's a quicker explanation. Spengler rather confusingly and annoyingly uses race in two senses. He uses it um, it's clear when he's using one sense or the other, so he's not equivocating, but it is a bit annoying that he chooses the same word for two different meanings. Uh, a race in the biological sense is what we all know it to be. Having race, in when Spangler says that, what he means is a person who has like a zest for life. They're willing to fight. They're willing to die if necessary. They want to have things. They want to reproduce. They want to have children. They want to do all those things that normal red-blooded men want to do. That's having race. And that's a great trait of the nobility and of the peasantry. It is not a trait of the priesthood. The priesthood doesn't have race in that sense of having race, right? In religions often, uh, not only... Catholicism, but in in many religions, look at ancient religions, it was common for priests to not marry or to abstain from sex because should not a priest be devoted to the bigger idea? Should he not be free of things of this world? That's a that is a prevalent thought throughout all religion. Not all religions follow it. Many, many priests do get married. But priests certainly in all religions are not supposed to acquire large amounts of wealth. This is like a common feeling among not just Faustian Western peoples, but everybody. Every, you can't think of a, a man who has lots of material things is never thought of as being um, really holy. The other thing, being informed. Now, this is a little bit more complicated, so I want to spend a little bit more time on this. Um, when Spangler says a people, a nation is in form or a class is in form, what he means is, have you ever been on a team, like a, uh, a high school sports team, a college sports team, maybe been in the military? And I don't just mean like a casual team, like, oh, yeah, we get together and play soccer. I mean like a real team, like you really love your comrades, your teammates. You would do anything for them. 
you you when you're out on the field you're willing to risk taking a tackle or push yourself to the next level just throw up like really exert yourself go through pain and risk and danger because you believe in the mission of winning and why do you believe in the mission of winning because you love the guys with you that's part of the idea of being in form and i think a lot of people today i mean this is a lot of people have never had that experience and so can't really imagine what that's like they can't imagine what um sort of these these great um teams in history like alexander's army or the ten thousand uh greeks who marched back from the battle of canuxa or uh the the roman armies of the second punic war or the german army of 1918 uh, 1939 they can't imagine what it would be like to be in a organization that is so well organized so deeply everyone is deeply committed to the mission now there's another aspect to this and it's not just throwing a bunch of guys together and and hoping for the best the way that a, a organization gets to be in form an army or a, a people is usually that it has to face some kind of external threat a real hard threat to its life because when you face that external threat you're you're forced to make very hard decisions and you tend to organize yourselves in the way that is best suited to confronting that external force. Now, I want to give a, a, uh, a contrast here. I've mentioned before on this podcast the scholar Peter Turchin. Peter Turchin wrote a book called War and Peace and War. The basic idea of it is that great empires tend to emerge where they are bordered by a truly alien people, a people with whom they have no common religion or mores or language uh, or race even. And so I think of the, the Romans in 300 BC, 400 BC, uh, bordered by the Celts in northern Italy. Well, there's two very alien peoples. And the struggle for life between the two is going to force one of them to destroy the other. And so one of them has to organize itself the best. And the Romans did it. The Romans were forced to do it because of the threat of the Celts destroying their society. And so part of being informed is that that feeling of commonality, that feeling of of devotion to the unit. But there's something else to it, too. And that gets into the idea of nobility and who the nobility is. And that is the idea that you have to basically uh, a, a organization that's in form has ranked people more or less it's never perfect but more or less according to their abilities now there's a lot of abilities here it's not just are you smart are you fast are you tough it's your moral ability and your bravery too that that matter and you think of um think of the german you know, go back to german army in 19 uh 1918 it was able to do incredible things i mean they lost the war but they were fighting up against uh the french empire the british empire and the united states all at the same time they were able to do what they did because they had this tradition of selecting for an officer class who was very competent very motivated and um very tough very brave good leaders people men wanted to follow the same is true of, of any great people now the opposite of that is what happens when your society hasn't really faced that kind of a threat. So I think it's better to actually look at 
an antithesis of uh, a society in form to kind of see what it looks like when this isn't the case. A good example of this would be Italy in World War One. Italy in World War One um, had just been united into a, a, a nation state 40 years before, 50 years before Garibaldi. And it had been united around the Kingdom of Savoy, which was a uh, uh, Piedmont Savoy in the northwest part of the country. And so you had all these different Italians speaking different dialects and being from vastly different backgrounds, very low educational attainment. A lot of these people couldn't even speak standard Italian, didn't understand the orders of their officers. And you also hadn't had a series of wars and difficult conflicts whereby the Italian state was able to identify who the really talented junior officers would be. Where are we going to find junior officers? Well, you can't just, you can build a military school and try to find smart people and throw them into military school, but you're not really selecting for your best people because in the, in like a military school environment, you know, there's a little bit of selection for toughness. There's, there's, there's a way to kind of push out people who suck, but there isn't a way to really establish who are the, the morally toughest people and to really find your elite. Now, if you look at the Italian, so naturally in the First World War, it's often said, well, the Italians just, oh, they were just like garbage and retards and they're cowards. No, that, that's not the case. And I'm not just saying that because I'm an Italian. I'm saying that because it's, it's true. They lost tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men. Like there was no question of lacking bravery. The problem was, is that they weren't really organized very well. They had really just carbon copied the organization of the British army, the Austrian army, the German army, like they just kind of did what everybody else did. And they'd never really tested themselves repeatedly to, to sort out who those people were. Now, tra uh, contrast that with the British. The British in 1914 were very well organized. They had been a great empire for 200, 300 years at that point. They had identified an officer class. They were able to identify talented men among the lower classes who would might might be able to make it up to lieutenant. They were able to identify within their officer classes who, generally speaking, was going to be a good staff officer, a good a good general. And the whole system was able to work because they had had these hundreds of years of experience, mainly building the empire, but before that, uh, fighting against the Welsh and the Scotch and the, uh, the Irish. Another aspect of this idea of being in form is that not only have you selected the right people, but also that you've trained them in the same way for a long time. So you have uh, a tradition. Spangler talks a lot about this. He very much admired the British aristocratic tradition of bringing boys up, teaching them the same things in school, teaching them the history of their country, the history of, of, uh, of Greece and Rome, and of inculcating them with this idea of duty to the state and, and their position as an aristocrat. This, how, you know, sort of to go back, how does the aristocracy, what, so I said that aristocrats and peasants are similar because they both have race. And the aristocracy is in form. The peasantry is not never in form. The aristocracy is in form, but they both have race. What else separates the two? Well, really not much. It's the only thing that separates the aristocracy from the peasantry is that the aristocrats tend to be, uh, they're just better educated. They're better cultured. They have acquired things 
they have a, a longer period of training to become an aristocrat. They have a longer education necessary. But that's not to, to denigrate the peasantry. Spengler is very um, laudatory of the peasantry. You also need your, your state in order to be it, it, the entire state, not just a class, but the whole state to be informed needs to have a strong peasantry with strong racial instincts that it's willing to reproduce and it's um, it's productive and it's loyal. Now, of course, you know, as always, this goes both ways. If the aristocracy starts to abuse the peasantry, as as um, happened in in various at various points in history, many points, then then there's there's the state starts to get out of form. The aristocracy is no longer to able to command the loyalty of the peasantry because they're mistreating them. So you need both. They work. They both work in a sort of symbi symbiotic relationship. The other thing that you start to see, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately, sort of going, thinking about back like ten years ago when I went to, um, I went to Georgetown, and you know I'm I'm from a petite bourgeois family. I'm not, uh, I'm not Greenwich, Connecticut rich, uh, but a lot of people at Georgetown are, and you know this is yeah, obviously we don't really have an aristocracy in America, but this is kind of the same type of person that we would say is the aristocracy of the Middle Ages. They have a, a similar training, similar sensibilities, similar uh, a, a healthy zest for life. They have very well-developed habits. And this is important to the idea of being in form because aristocrats are able to work together specifically because they have very, they develop over time codes of conduct, uh, manners, etiquette that allow them to understand when so one of their colleagues is acting uh, in a hostile way or in a um, in a friendly way. And this allows the society to be informed, to be much more efficient. So I was always at first when I when I was at school, I always I had a very hard time under reading social cues. I didn't know when somebody was um, subtly attacking me or when they were being patronizing or when they were being kind. It was hard to read because their manners were, were more subtle. Contrast that with, uh, well, let's go to the other stream. Let's look at blacks. Blacks are not subtle at all. Manners among blacks are the crude opposite of manners among aristocratic white people. And, and I find this very interesting because in a society like America today that isn't very, it's not very well sorted, people are, there's no real class distinctions. There's, uh, people are forced to be with people of different backgrounds, different races even. And it leads to many conflicts that otherwise would not arise if there was a better organization of the society. Now, this brings us to the idea of how do societies break down? How do you go from being informed to not being informed at all? Well, as I mentioned earlier, in order to force a society to be informed, it has to face the the the, the uh, more dangerous and more lethal the external threat is, the better it will organize itself. That's a, just a general rule. So what if that external threat is removed? What if you have long periods of peace? Well, then you get degeneracy. And what what is the mechanism in terms of manners and behavior what is the mechanism that causes degeneracy well one thing is that the aristocrats 
might start to promote too many people who should not be promoted. In a, uh, I mean, this is basically how the Jews came to power in America, is the old Anglo aristocracy was generous. And they saw, oh, he's talented. Let's, uh, let's let uh, this boy, uh, Henry Kissinger, well, make him uh, Secretary of State. He's a talented fellow. And, and opening things up too much allows people in who really shouldn't be there because they don't share the manners and the the core idea of the rest of the aristocracy. And so other groups are able to get in and start to break it apart. The other thing that happens as a result of a lack of an external pressure is that the uh, martial values of the aristocracy start to erode. So this idea kind of comes in that we shouldn't be as we shouldn't be as violent anymore. Um, you think of like the old, the uh, the British aristocracy of uh, 1800. Well, what did you do when two aristocrats were butting heads? If uh, Captain so-and-so and First Lieutenant so-and-so were sitting at the officer's mess and, and uh, Lieutenant like pushes his elbow into the captain's area, well, the captain would say, excuse me, how dare you? And the lieutenant would say either, excuse me, sir, I, I'm, I apologize. I'm not, I, let me make it up to you. Because he would recognize that he'd committed a social wrong. Or he would double down and he would uh, order a bottle of black porter to piss off uh, the colonel. I don't know. And the way to solve this, the only way to solve this is to demand a duel and demand satisfaction. The purpose of a duel, I mean, people nowadays like, oh, dueling is so barbaric. It actually has a very important social function because it prevents weak and persnickety people from being able to dominate social situations and get one in on people who are less clever, but who are more useful because they're better fighters. So the purpose of the duel isn't really to find out who's like the better shot or who's the better swordsman. I mean, yeah, that's kind of a part of it, but the real purpose is because somebody's probably going to back down when you're faced with the possibility that the other guy is going to challenge you to fight to the death or, you know, maybe get shot in the arm or something. You're going to be less likely to violate custom. And when the customs have been established for a long time and they get refined, they get refined to almost an absurd point. I mean, I remember as a kid um, you know, being told, don't put your elbows on the table. And to me, I was like, well, what's the point? We're all sitting like, I can't possibly be jabbing somebody next to me if we're sitting like at different corners of the table. There's no, there doesn't seem to be a function to this. And, but you can see how in a different time, a different place, there is a very important function to an old manner like that because it prevents two, you know, full of blood and, and sweat aggressive men from having a misunderstanding that will lead to a fight. And that allows, the group in this case we're talking about the like the, the aristocracy this allows them to then work together now moving ahead we haven't really mentioned the other estate and that's the priesthood said the the key difference between the priesthood and the other two classes is that the priesthood is concerned not with manners matters of this world so they have a very different mentality some of the points that spangler points out as being different between the priesthood and the nobility is that the nobility, it's it's a, a minor point, but it's very interesting, I think, revealing. 
the nobility has a sense of humor. Fighting men tend to have a sense of humor. Uh, Barrack's humor is notoriously raunchy. Uh, I think of uh, all the guys at Charlottesville. Everyone had a great sense of humor. There were jokes flying left and right. The alt-right itself, uh, anybody involved in these sorts of politics tends to have a very good sense of humor. Now, why is that? It's because people of that type tend to enjoy common sense ideas, facts, as Spangler puts it, at the expense or contrary to universal abstract truths. So, and but how does the sort of priesthood react to this? In now we're, we're jumping around here from the, from the Middle Ages to today, but the priesthood today would be people uh, who are under the influence of like extreme liberalism. These are the priest types. They believe that all people are the same, that we should all love one another, blah, blah, blah. You should love thy neighbor. These ideas, like we can all, even aristocrats and peasants can agree with, oh, sure, I should love my neighbor, I guess. But I mean, what if he's a murderer? Uh, you know, maybe I can love him in some abstract sense. Maybe one day I can imagine that we in the afterlife can can work together or something or he, he will be cured of his homicidal tendencies in the future. But I mean, right now, facts, facts. He's a murderer. I'm not going to invite him over to dinner. Uh, the same thing with I mean, this I mean, writ large, uh, different racial groups. I can we can all say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I people of other races i can understand them perhaps we can we can have a sort of common human understanding of one another but you know practical matters is that we shouldn't be living side by side because they are going to compete with me and they are bad for my interests and my people's interests that's the aristocratic idea and it's unfortunately the repressed idea the idea that is not allowed to be said in our society which is causing well basically all of our problems Another sort of interesting way to look at this difference between the priesthood and the aristocracy, Spangler points out, and I like this point because it goes into language, which is one of my favorite things, is that the language that a priest prefers is very different from the language that an aristocrat prefers. Priests, clergies over time are extremely conservative in language. They like to maintain dead languages. Uh, out of just com total conservatism for how things are you have to say the ritual the way it has always been said otherwise uh the gods will be angry god will be angry uh the catholic church until very well oh, still sort of you can go to a latin mass uh but until recently the catholic church conducted everything in latin if we look at other points in history the ancient mesopotamians stopped speaking sumerian sumerian died out as a language probably about 2300 BC. No one's really sure. Probably pretty early uh, in Mesopotamian history. And it was still used as a literary, uh, especially a priestly religious language, well into the first millennium. So 2000 years, I mean, toward the end of the first millennium are the last Sumerian texts. So this is 2000 years in ancient times of the passing down of this language. Uh, think of in um, Iranic culture, Avestan, the language of the Zoroastrian priesthood. Zoroastrianism still exists a little bit. Uh, it's the the uh, the religion of the ancient Iranians of the, uh, the uh, Parthian and, and Sassanid dynasties of Persia. This 
Avestan language uh, is still used in, in liturgical texts, even though no one's spoken it for, for centuries. On the other hand, aristocracies, aristocratic literature, tends to use language that is merely a refined form of the common people's speech. So you think of Middle High German or Old French or Old English. These are the exact language that the people were speaking, but they had to, or Homeric Greek, it had to be changed a little bit to suit the purposes of, of high literature, of poetry. They had to introduce some, they had to keep some old forms in the language. They had to build up new words from, from little, littler words. But aristocracies tend to prefer this sort of language. Relating this to the current day, uh, English speech is becoming more and more larded out with Latin and Greek. It's always had Latin and Greek. I mean, since, well, since really the Norman conquest, it's had Latin and French in it. And, but this tendency to, to add more Latin and Greek into it is becoming worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And you're getting almost this class split in the English speaking world between people who can speak the highly Latinate, highly complex, very archaic, very artificial language of the newspapers or of uh, academia. Think of an academic paper, right? It's full of jargon. It's full of words used in special ways. It's full of words that nobody outside of that field might even understand. Contrast that with the the English idea, which I love so much, which is the idea of, of creating an English that's based only on the English of before 1066. Well, I don't I don't like this idea just because I'm like an Anglo-Saxon uh, fetishist or something. I like this idea because English is trying to build up a speech that allows people to communicate in the um, with words derived from the common stock of our own language. So for I mean, just to give a, a quick example, rather than saying, oh, we need to reform the government, reform Latin government. French from Latin. Uh, in, in, in English, you might say uh, we need to back shape the overlordship. It's wonderfully simple. And and it's kind of it sort of has that that aristocratic humor to it. It's almost a, a little bit childish. But and then this sort of reveal this reveals a, a uh, not only the mentality of the aristocracy because there's that idea of humor, but also the priesthood, on the other hand, a, a person with a more priestly idea of how things should be said will not really find it funny. They'll find it just, oh, you shouldn't talk that way. Priest type people hear the sorts, I mean, forget about language for a second. They hear the sorts of political statements that we make that are ruthlessly simple. They cut to the fucking point. Jews are powerful. That's it. Yeah, that's an oversimplification. We can all agree that on on that that it's not just Jews; it's it's other people too. But Jews are the most powerful faction in Western politics. Duh. A priest person, a cosmopolitan liberal, uh, let's all be friends. Here's that, and they don't even find it funny. A person who's not a national socialist might not agree with that statement, but they'll get they'll they'll maybe give a wry smile to it, even if they don't agree with it. It's, it's kind of oh, it's funny. You're breaking social mores. That's kind of cool and funny, but a priest person will just be uh, feel, oh, that's 
that you just shouldn't say that. So let's get back into the, the history here, because I've been digressing on these sort of, um, sort of psychological studies of the different types of people, different classes within a society. So we go back to Europe of the late Middle Ages. You've got kings who have now ceded a lot of power to the, nob- to the nobility. The nobility is the dominant class. The priesthood's pretty strong and they're able to make themselves felt, but there isn't that. Um, why can't those conditions last forever? Why can't the nobility just stay in power and let things go on? Well, what happens is that once you've attained that level of organization as a, a people, as a, a budding nation state, well, you start to have economic progress. You start to get more things. You start to have bigger cities. And then you start to get you you start to get more specialization in the trades, and so you have this emergence of the middle class. And this is much commented upon in history. You've probably heard this in school. I don't really have a you know a, a, a deep knowledge of this. My opinions probably aren't, aren't great, but just to give a basic idea, you get the middle class emerging in you know the Renaissance era with the emergence of bigger and bigger cities in Europe, and this burger class, the bourgeoisie, starts to feel themselves now, like like the way the nobility did, they start to say, well, we have class interests. Now the bourgeoisie starts to notice, hey, all of us uh, city people were more than, we're not peasants, we're not lords or nobles, but we have common class interests, so let's work together. And this inevitably leads to a conflict between the aristocracy and the middle class for power. The middle class wants recognition. They want status. The aristocracy wants to hold on to their status and their power. There is an age in Western civilization, this happened in the classical civilization too, where the kings who you know had to cede their power to some of their, a good amount of their power to the aristocrats, now can team up with a new power block in the middle class and start to exert themselves more against the nobles. And it seems like sort of the obvious thing to do. And it's in a way it's it's good because you're getting a better centralization of power, but it's bad because the middle class is not the class that you really want to have running things because going back to the aristocracy, they're not the ones who have been selected for on the basis of their bravery and their willingness to fight. So this is where money power emerges. Within the society, you know, you've got you've got basically two ways of exercising violence. I, I started this, this lecture off introducing this idea of money power versus power power violence. You've got your sword power violence and your, your, call it your purse power money. If there is no means of having just a straight up civil war, or if the, then if there's no means of, of deciding between two groups of people on the basis of violence because the society is fairly well organized and there's there's courts and there's a system for adjudicating disputes. Well, what has to happen is that money power is going to be the dominant force in politics. So people who accrue a ton of money through trade, uh, 
whether they be the middle class, the really high middle class, the upper bourgeoisie, or they happen to be, I mean, this is brings in the Jewish question, or Jewish, they are able to exercise power over and against the nobility because there is no no longer recourse to violence. There's that in the nobility, they still might do duels or something, but you can't just fight it out with a with a top tier Jew or a top tier uh, tycoon of industry who happens to be favored by the government. So, what this lead this is both a good and a bad thing. It's a I'm not you know this don't read this as a, a reactionary uh, lecture or don't I, I, you shouldn't read Spengler as a reactionary saying well we ought to just go back to those days. What this means is. It's both good and bad. It's good because you, the state, the king, has found a way to prevent internal conflict that erupts into outright violence. Uh, to take an extreme version of what that looks like, go back to the Holy Roman Empire before uh, the 1490s, before Maximilian I. Before then, theoretically, you had as a noble, Federecht, you had the right to engage in a feud. You could have a private war with another prince. It's like a duel, but on a large scale. You could, if you had a problem with the next prince, you just gather up your men, go invade his country, fight him. The state did not claim that monopoly on violence. The state allowed the princes to engage in violence, even within the own, their own society. That's good in the long run because it allows for the more noble types, the fighting types to rise in the society. But it's bad because you have civil wars. Um, and and so then dueling is sort of a, a more micro version of that. You don't want your, I mean, uh, in the 1940s, some of the uh, German officers uh, were still challenging each other to duels. Uh, there's a famous incident where um, I think it was Guderian wanted to have a duel with von Kluge and Hitler was like, no, you're not fucking doing that. Um, so it's 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 good because it prevents internal conflict um, by by the state claiming total control of violence. It's bad because it allow it doesn't allow for people to the right sorts of people to rise in society. So now this is how money power rises because you're no longer able to fight each other to see who gets to be on top. Now you have to do other things. You still might be able to win. Um, prove yourself valuable to the country by being a great soldier or something. But that's only external. You're not allowed to prove it internally. And even if you are a great soldier, well, the state might not give a damn about you. And they might sideline you as they as you know, Sipi Africanus after the Second Punic War. Patton, um, you might be the best and most useful soldier. But you know, does the state you're actually kind of a danger to the state really at that point. The state doesn't really have a use for you. So what sorts of people start to rise in a society that has done away with this this internal violence and has claimed total monopoly on violence? Well, people who are better at winning in business, so people are good at making deals, good at I mean, which is it's good and bad. I'm again not not it's good because they're able to build up big industries and, and work peacefully within the society, but how do you get power in business? Well, it's not just that you're productive. There's all there's another strategy, which is to be a sneaky fuck and to get one in on people, stab them in the back, do all kinds of things, do dirty work. And the main way to adjudicate these sorts of disputes, once you've done away with dueling, once you've done away with fait recht, 
is that you have to have a court system. Now, obviously, there was a court system going way back into the Middle Ages. Things were decided by by trials. But now at this point, when the middle class emerges over the aristocracy, you get a phenomenon that we all know very well called lawfare, where people can file lawsuits against one another. And, and sometimes it's justified. And sometimes the person who's who's giving the lawsuit is is correct and should win. But sometimes people just have more resources because they have more money. So it just builds and builds and builds. There more and more power can power can really only be exercised by through the purse. You can give somebody a job, you can deny them a job, you can give them an income, you can withhold the income, you can sue them, you can try to uh, you can use economic warfare within the society to advance yourself but you do not have recourse to the sword and now here's where we can get into the jewish question properly i'll bring back up some points that i i said in the last lecture in case you, you didn't listen to it spengler views history as being not being a linear development of of mankind throughout time it's different cultures rising up, blossoming, and then dying out. So the ones that we're going to talk about are the Faustian culture, which is ours, starting in about 900, 950 till today, and the what Spangler calls the Magian culture, that is the Arabian Middle Eastern culture beginning in about the time of Christ, uh, going through to uh, about the time of the Crusades, and with Islam right in the middle of that. Islam was the great uniting force within that Arabian civilization. So in the Arabian Middle Eastern worldview of which Jews are a part, they have a very different way of looking at the world than we do. And Spengler comments on this a great deal. Their main difference between in, in, in how they view politics, we have the idea that a state ought to be organized on the basis of blood that people who are of the same type should be together, speak the same language, same culture. Those people go naturally together. This is how basically all of Western civilization, this is the key idea in our uh, political thinking. Jews, Middle Eastern Christians, Muslims, their idea is that society should be based on the consensus of believers. And this goes, Spengler traces this into uh, into a religious theory, into a sort of epistemology of, of how these people think about the world. And what he says is that the Magian Jewish Arab idea of the world is that every person has within them the sort of Holy Spirit from God. God, there's, there's this spirit in God. You see this Christianity, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You see it in, you see it in Islam and in, in the idea of, of, of God and, and all the believers being part of the same community. This spirit permeates each person within the faith. And so in a way, everybody within the faith is is spiritually tied to one another in a way that we don't really think of it. Because in our philosophy, going back to the Middle Ages, Western philosophy is very concerned with the idea of will. You look at our, our religious arguments in the Middle Age or in the, in the Reformation, uh, predestination. Well, is does your will matter? Uh, is do is 
wanting to do the right thing good enough or do you have to actually do the good thing? Much of our philosophy and our religious disputes are based on the idea of, of will. In the Jewish Middle Eastern idea, having a will, having a personal will is almost wrong because you should submit to the will of God. And so they almost, when they look at us, put yourselves, <laughs> strange, put yourselves in their shoes for a second. They look at us and they see our, our obsession with, ah, this is my will and I will do the right thing. I will, I will do what's right for my people and my community. They see that as a profound sin because you have a will and you should deny your own will in their general, I mean, this is a broad strokes, how their religion, how they look at the universe. So I'm going to read this part from Decline in the West, Volume 2, where Spengler explains the Jewish and uh, Islamic way of looking at the world. And he, he uses the word Magian to describe uh, Muslims, Jews, Iranians, like all, all these Middle Eastern peoples. As every Magian consensus is non-territorial and geographically unlimited, it involuntarily sees in all conflicts concerning European ideas of fatherland, mother tongue, ruling house, monarchy, constitution, are returned to forms that are thoroughly alien. Hence the word international, whether it be coupled with socialism, pacifism, or capitalism, can excite him to great enthusiasm. But what he hears in the word, or in that word, is the essence of his landless and boundless consensus. While for the European American, democracy, constitutional struggles, and revolutions mean an evolution towards the civilized ideal, for him, they mean, almost unconsciously, the breaking down of all that is of other build than himself. Even when the force of the consensus in him is broken, and the life of, the, of his host people, us, exercises an outward attraction upon him to the point of an induced patriotism, yet the party that he supports is always that which the aims are most nearly comparable with the Magian essence. Hence, in Germany, Jews are Democrats, and in England, they're imperialists. It is exactly the same misunderstanding as when West Europeans regard young Turks or Chinese reformers as kindred spirits because they're constitutionalists. If there is inward relationship, a man affirms even where he destroys. If inward alienness, his effect is negative, even where his desire is to be constructive. What the Western culture has destroyed by reform efforts of its own type where it has had power in China or, or anywhere else in the world, hardly bears thinking of. And Jewry has been equally destructive where it has intervened. The sense of the inevitableness of this reciprocal misunderstanding leads to the appalling hatred that settles deep in the blood and fastening upon visible marks like race, mode of life, profession, speech, leads both sides to waste, ruin, and bloody excesses whenever the conditions occur. So... <laughs> That's a pretty ringing uh, endorsement of the idea of separating different uh, peoples of different cultural groups, especially as different as, as Jews and us. Now, in this regard, Spangler does bring up a very interesting comparison to the classical world, because in, in the case of the Western world, we have this alien group within our society that is very powerful and acts within the, the money power, within the financial elite. Contrast that with Roman times of the first century BC, when Romans were really the mature civilization uh, and Middle Easterners were really just starting to get this new sense of religiousness with the new 
Christianity was almost wasn't there yet, but there was sort of this uh, new coming religious feeling uh, in Judaism and in in uh, in among the Iranians that there was uh, the, the Magian idea that I was talking about earlier, where the we should have a community based on common religious feeling and that the will of God is primary to the will of all. So these people in the Middle East, in uh, Anatolia specifically, there's an incident in 88 or 89 BC where there were many Roman uh, expatriates, Roman traders, Roman uh, maybe bureaucratic officials, but not really. It, the area hadn't yet been incorporated into the Roman Empire properly, but there was lots of Roman ex, uh, economic exploitation going on in Anatolia because the Romans were an advanced people and the Anatolians were not. There was a great massacre that happened where Mithridates, who was the king of Pontus, organized the people in Anatolia. They had a big, great conspiracy one night to go out and kill every Roman they could find. And they killed about 80,000 people. And this is the conservative estimate. Uh, some of the other classical authors give even more, uh, given even bigger ones. And But this number, as, cre as large as it is, is actually the accepted number nowadays. Um, maybe, maybe it's a little bit less, but it was a great number of people were just massacred. Spangler has a very interesting observation on this because in his view, the analogy between that world and today is that the Romans to the Anatolians were kind of like the Jews to us. This was like a pogrom, that cultural racial hatred between the two groups because of their different worldviews uh, resulted in the Romans exploiting economically the Middle Easterners, the Anatolians, people of uh, Asia Minor. And then the, the reaction to that was just an outpouring of bloodshed. So relating to that incident, Spangler says, Jewry of the Western European group has entirely lost the relation to the open land, which had still existed in the Moorish period in Spain. There were no more peasants. The smallest ghetto in Europe was a fragment, however miserable, of, Maga of the, the big city and its inhabitants split into castes. The rabbi is the Brahmin or Mandarin of the ghetto and a mass uh, characterized by civilized cold superior intelligence and an undeviating eye to business. But this phenomenon, again, is not unique if our historical sense takes the wider horizon. For all Meiji nations have been in this condition since the Crusade period. That's They've been at the end of their philosophical and religious development. Uh, he goes on to give the uh, some examples of the, the Parsis in India, the Armenians and the Greeks in the Mediterranean. The same phenomenon occurs in every other civilization when it pushes into a younger group of people. Witness the Chinese in California, uh, in Java, in Singapore, uh, that of the Indian trader in East Africa, and that of the Romans in the early Arabian world. In the last instance, indeed, the conditions were the exact reverse of those today for the quote-unquote Jews of those days were the Romans. And the Middle Easterner felt for them an apocalyptic hatred that is very closely akin to our Western European anti-Semitism. The outbreak of 88 BC, in which, at a sign from Mithridates, 100,000 Roman business people were murdered by the exasperated population of Asia Minor, was a veritable pogrom. Now, I'd like to add to this by pointing out 
while the analogy between the Roman world and today of, of the Romans being the sophisticated, uh, well-developed society that were <laughs> ruthlessly exploiting the uh, the proto-Jews, <laughs> the uh, well, not not really, the the people of Asia Minor, uh, resulting in a, in a in a pogrom of the Romans. Uh, it's interesting because the Roman financial class of that period of about the time from they really emerged in the decades after the Second Punic War. And you started to see financial conflicts. I mean, the financial conflicts became the primary concern of Roman society in the second century BC. And it's what led to the civil wars up to Caesar and uh, finally Octavian. So this is a 200 year period, right? From Battle of Zama, 202, Carthaginians defeated. Rome is now master of the Mediterranean. Rome starts expanding uh, even more into Spain, particularly, and then also into the Grecian uh, successors of Alexander, the, the kingdoms of the Diadochi. And the Roman financial class that started to exploit, I mean, it started to sort of cannibalize its own society. There was no, there was so much uh, wealth and so much victory that. And it was no, it was not yet organized as a as a total top down empire, a, a sovereign monarchy. The the old uh, aristocracy and the new financial class were firmly in charge. So what did they start to do? Well, these weren't necessarily the best people rising to the top. It wasn't the you know it wasn't the heroes of Zama or of Canai that were running the society necessarily. Um, Scipio Africanus, uh, the, the victor of, of Zama, was disdained in Rome after his victory at Zama. He was no longer needed. Uh, he was a, a danger to the state, really, and to, well, to the power, to the power of, of the, this emerging power of money. And at the same time in this period, just like you know, in, in the last two centuries for us, there was no way for anybody to appeal to a higher authority. There was no way to appeal to the sword, the power of, of open violence to fight against this firm control of the society by a loosely a loose collection of bourgeois money men. But the difference here between the classical civilization and ours is that in their civilization, this money class was all Roman. There was no outside ethnic or, or different cultural clique that was a was a player, let alone the main player within this financial overclass. It would be almost as if in ancient Rome of 100 BC or of the 130s of the time of uh, the Gracchi brothers, uh, it would be almost as if there was like maybe some a few thousand Egyptians in Rome who all pretended to be Romans and spoke Latin, but worked together as a sort of financial cabal to exercise power in the Senate and secure their own financial interests at the expense of the people and at the expense of the native Roman financial class. That wasn't the case. It's, uh, if you imagine it, that, that would be the analogy. That would be as if our civilization were the same. In our civilization, we have an actual alien group that is the main group within our financial class. So in kind of going about the getting to the question of how do you get out of this, I'll talk about the how the Roman a different leaders of the people emerged among the Romans and started to try to reassert state authority over against the money men. 
But the other thing that's important to recognize here is that this financial overclass, in Spangler's opinion, it is actually the financial overclass that is the more important factor in the society at the time, and it's not necessarily this ethnic conflict. Spangler sees Jews as really just a sort of a symptom of this phase that Western civilization has to go through because because of the development of the estates over time, because of the way civilizations evolve, as I've, I've traced out, that there is going to be this period of financial dominance. But the thing that has to happen is that a sovereign power has to emerge by basically beating the financial class at its own game. Now, of course, easier said than done. In the case of the Romans, uh, I, I gave a lecture on this uh, about the fall of the Roman Republic from the Gracchi, uh, the brothers uh, Tiberius and Caius Gracchus in the 130s and 120s BC, how they tried to implement land reform to give the peasantry and the soldiers a stake in society because the bourgeoisie had started to buy up all the land and were and there was a really a raw deal for a lot of people in Roman society at the time, especially the peasants and the soldiers. And nobody within the financial class was interested in trying to help them. And if, and if anybody did try to help them, well, he's trying to become king. He's trying to be a tyrant because he's trying to build, in their opinion, he's trying to build power among the people to then be able to, to use them as his supporters against us. And if he gets enough supporters who are loyal enough to him, to, Ki to Tiberius Gracchus, or to later men like Marius and Sulla, well, he's going to be able to throw out the financial power and throw out the upper bourgeoisie and then reinstate a sort of gigantic kingdom. And this is exactly what happened. The first attempts, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus were a lot like Donald Trump. Uh, they were sort of populist political movements uh, that really tried to fight hard in the courts and in the within the parliament, the pseudo parliamentary system, the ancient system of, of the Senate and the, the various uh, other assemblies and uh, try to win power, win offices like the tribunate and then and use that to exercise power legally to secure the interests of the lower classes. That wasn't possible because there was nobody within the upper bourgeoisie, the equites, or um, they're called their, their political class were called the uh, optimates, uh, the best people, optimus, best, right? The first attempts didn't work out because it was it was very political and it was it was a uh, lots of lawfare, lots of lawyering and, and electioneering and trying to grind out the system, and it, it turned into outright big street fights where both brothers in, in ten years apart were killed in street fighting, and their movements were destroyed. That solved the problem for the bourgeoisie for a little while in Roman society. They were able to like crush the peasants, crush the soldiers, and, and keep going on with exploiting, winning more money for themselves, and playing the power game with money. It led to this big crisis in the 80s BC, well, from like 100 to 80 BC. A number of things went wrong. There were the wars in Numidia that were disastrous and a complete waste of resources and Roman troops were not performing at all. Uh, it led to uh, there were major crises like the invasions of the Teutones and the Cimbri into into uh, pro the, the Roman province of Gaul, Gallia Provincia, the, the southern part that they controlled then. 
and um, and then into Italy. And they crushed several giant Roman armies and the system got desperate enough that it had to appoint the best. It, it had to not appoint an incompetent like uh, General Mark Milley. It had to appoint a real warrior hero. And so, well, we were, they picked Marius because he had a reputation from from the war in Numidia and, and one of the other men was Sulla. And so these guys started to be able to win power because they were able to be useful to the system and the system really didn't have a choice but to use men like that. Now, there are two important points about men like Marius and Sulla and then later Pompey and Caesar and, and Crassus that these men were able to emerge as big men. And, and when we think about this time, you're kind of seeing the future of Western civilization, hopefully. Caesar was able to make himself indispensable to the financial class because he took on huge debts. He didn't just go into debt like, oh, yeah, I have a you know, college college loans and, and a mortgage. And blah. No, no. He got like he went on into Elon Musk tier debt. He was getting all kinds of big financial um, people to contribute money to him to the point where if his political career failed, they would be ruined. Now, that's not the only angle to it. You have to also, if you're going to be Caesar, you got to do, you got to win uh, support. You got to force people to support you in the financial class by going super into debt. But the other thing you got to do is you got to win the loyalty of the men. And he did that with his conquest in Gaul. And of course, Marius and Sulla did it too, because they weren't just they weren't just good generals. They weren't just good leaders. I mean, they, they did lead from the front, um, but that's that alone isn't enough. They used their power politically to assure the interests of their veterans. So in the case of Marius and Sulla, they were always going into the Senate and fighting uh, with each other and fighting with the other aristocrats or the uh, with the equites, with the bourgeoisie over land rights for their men because their political interest was that, well, if we've won a bunch of wars for you, now you need to give parcels of land, you need to give a retirement program to my soldiers. Otherwise, well, I don't know, something's, something bad's going to happen. And that worked for a little while, but you, you're seeing through this whole process that breakdown of the normal bourgeois means of fighting within a society. Remember, I was talking about earlier about how in a bourgeois society, you can't do dueling anymore. So you have to fight in sneaky ways. You have to get more money and then use that to buy people or you have to uh, you have to be so socially graceless that you humiliate other people because they have no way to just you know call you out and duel you. That started to break down because every custom, every law, every tradition that the Romans had was blocking the ability of the people to get justice from the state. And so this culminated the first time, the first culmination of this was Sulla's march on Rome. Sulla was basically screwed out of getting a command that he wanted and he, he it was not the political interest of his men either and his, his men knew that their interests were tied to Sulla. So he was able to make a big speech and lead the men, march on Rome, take power. And uh, he posted up prescription lists of all the 
all the bourgeois people who had a lot of land. And, you know, at this point, there wasn't that feeling in society that like, well, we should be nice with each other and we should follow custom and we should. People were pissed. So you put up a prescription list. Yeah. Uh, Flavius, Julius, uh, Pompilius, whoever the fuck that guy, shithead, useless. Any citizen is authorized to kill him and take his money, take everything. And that's what happened. And so there's big purges of the uh, financial class that didn't end it, of course. Sulla was kind of a reactionary and just sort of tried to reset the regime in the old Republican ways. He was sort of a, I don't know, he's like a, like Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan with an army. So where does this leave us now? Where are our Sulla and our Caesar? Spengler tried to answer this in his final book published a few years before his death, Hour of Decision. In Hour of Decision, Spangler lays out that there's, in, the over, in order to overthrow the, the financial class that has emerged in Rome and, and has in our society, there is a, a natural reaction from below and from outside. So he calls these two things a class war and the race war. And the class war is all those people who are disaffected by the rule of financial power. Because there is, like with Sulla or and his veterans, there is no way to, within the system, redress grievances. You can't go to court. I mean, you can, but you're just going to lose. You can't you can't beat them at the money game. You, you have to march on Rome. And this reaction uh, among among the uh, the lower classes, in Spengler's opinion, mainly he's talking about it from a bad point of view. He doesn't like the communist. He doesn't like the class war because to him, he's mainly seeing it as it manifested as communism, as uh, lower class people being against the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy because of communism. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try to treat Spangler charitably here because I, I, he has a little bit of a reactionary tendency in him. He's a, he's a little bit of a neo-reactionary sort of guy. But I, I think reading it charitably, what he sees is, is that there are, there's two ways this can go. There is going to be a desire among everybody who's not in the elite to see a new regime. There's going to be no mechanism to force this to happen. So no legal mechanism, at least no, no, nothing within the system that will allow it. So you have the emergence of, of figures like Saul and Caesar, but there's really two ways this can go. It can either go the way of communism or it can go the way of national socialism. Spengler had his criticisms of national socialism, but let's take national socialism at its best. National Socialism says we ought to go and look at the masses and the people who are disaffected, and we will find the ones among them who have race, who have the desire to fight and are not just resigned to whatever. We'll find those people, we'll whip them up into form, we'll put them into a good order, and then we will try to throw out the financial elites and establish a new and better regime. Now, this is not going to be, Sulla understood this, Caesar understood this, and Hitler understood this. This regime is not going to be a beautiful, happy, gay, faggot world. It's still going to be tough. 
Like it's not the Roman Empire was a sort of necessary evil following all of the uh, excesses and fighting of the late Republic. So we're not going to get like a beautiful, happy white world where everybody's getting along and we're all like barbecuing in the backyard, like all those maudlin little pictures you see sometimes that people will post uh, of George, what's his name? Uh, not good Rockwell, bad Rockwell, that that maudlin painter uh, of happy American 1950s white families all grilling together and being happy. Fuck that. That should to a man of race, to somebody who belongs in the National Socialist Movement, or to somebody who belongs fighting against the financial class, to a man of history, a man of his generation, that stuff should fill you with revulsion because it is the idea of death. It is the antithesis of the National Socialist feeling of having race, of wanting to struggle. Now, this is, I mean, I know this all sounds very poetic and... Like, yeah, I mean, you can say that, but like, really? I was talking earlier about, about being informed and about how when you're on a team that you really care about, you really love, you'll like do anything for the guys, right? You know, if you've never felt that before, if you're like a young guy, you're like, you know, a teenager or a 20-something, you've never felt that before, you need to feel that. I... You know, there's not a lot of good options for it anymore. Don't join the fucking army. Join a, a, a sports team, even if it's with normies. Like, join, go play rugby or something. Like, just get hit. Like, and and even if they're normies, like, fine. You'll you'll understand a little piece of what that feeling is of being a team and working together and being in form. Good literature also and good movies show this idea. I mean, I'm, one of my favorites is uh, uh, Starship Troopers. Uh, uh, good books that, that exemplify this, uh, Ernst Jünger's Storm of Steel. Uh, a great movie that I just saw that really shows this idea. I and mean, there's a lot of movies from the Third Reich that get at this idea of being in form and being a member of a team and the unit being more important than the man. And what's funny about them, well, let me give you an example. So there's one movie called Urlaub auf Ehrenwort. Uh, leave by word of honor. It was made in the 1930s. It's about a German company in 1918 that's passing through Berlin uh, and it has to wait for five hours to get a, a, another train to be moved to the front. And the lieutenant who's in charge of this company is faced with a really hard dilemma because about two-thirds of the company are men from Berlin. And they all want to go on leave. They got five hours. That's enough time to hop on a trolley, trolley and go see their wives or go see their friends or their professors or, or, or uh, whatever. But because of the way the war is at at the time, he, the lieutenant, is going to be held responsible if anybody deserts. And the military is very concerned that people are going to desert. Like if you let a guy, if you give him a pass, he's just going to abscond and not come back to his unit. And if that happens, then, of course, the lieutenant is going to face a court-martial. The lieutenant doesn't want to let anybody go. He's going to get in you know, deep trouble uh, if, if anybody doesn't come back. But he really can't help it. And I think he makes the right decision by letting them go. Just because if he doesn't let them go and he 
keeps everybody in the unit and then goes to the front, well, their morale is definitely going to be hurt. And they're not going to they're going to hold it against him for not using his authority to let them go. But on the other hand, if he lets them go, well, that's a problem. So he lets them go. All the men and the rest, most of the movie is, is shows the different some of the different guys, little vignettes. Some go see their wives. A couple of them are communists and go and, and go whoring and talking about writing subversive articles. And as the clock is ticking down, the men start coming back. Most of them come back, but he's still waiting on, on, on a couple of them. And one of them is his, his uh, first sergeant. And he's like, fuck, like, I'm, I'm done. And so they get on the train. They're leaving. He's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to face what I'm going to have to face. And it turns out that his sergeant oversleeps and looks at his watch. Oh, shit. He, get, he manages to get his neighbor to give him a ride in the lorry and to try to rush to the next train station to catch up with the train. And there's this scene where the lorry, the, the truck catches up with the train as they're coming toward that, that way station. And all of the men see the sergeant and they are ecstatic. They are so happy to see him. And, he, and he's really happy to see them. We get to the station, everyone's happy. It's great. And then like the couple other that, that didn't come back are uh, a couple communists. Um, even they come back. Like communists back then were sort of a different breed, I guess. He, he, uh, one of the communists is like, well, I just, my, that damn sense of duty, sir. And he, he shows up and... Uh, that feeling that the movie conveys very well is something that I think a lot of people haven't had. And that is really what you need to have in order to be that effective team that's going to overthrow Jewish financial power. Now, Spangler, on the other question, the race war question, you know, I read this book in 2015 or 2016. It was right, it was 2015, it was right when the big migration of uh, blacks and browns to Europe was happening. And you were seeing these images in the news. And of course, the news was saying, oh, poor refugees. And they're burning things and attacking people. And there's stories of rape and murder, horrible, awful things. And to any man of race, this, of course, fills you with rage and hate, as it should. Because if you love people and you understand how the world is, you understand facts, not vague, gay, pseudo-religious truths. You understand facts of how the world works. You understand that this is evil and this has to be stopped. Now, the world's not going to be perfect, but this is evil. This is so bad that it, it can be stopped. It must be stopped. Spengler's take on the race war, it was, it's, it's, Ingenious. He he's in 1930-something foreseeing what will happen. Um, what was happening a little bit at the time. I mean, you think of like the Rhineland bastards, or you think of uh, the French and the British's uh, use of Senegalese or Indian troops in in Europe, and and these uh, black and brown men being in a war man to man with white men, and no longer. Do they fear white men as they did when they were being colonized in the 19th century and the 18th century? Now, for the first time, they're fighting on the same level as white men. They're fighting organized, I mean, obviously organized in battalions like, like white men and using white man uh, technology and weapons and organization. But no longer in their eyes is the white man invincible. 
Spengler compares this to the way the ancient Germani, uh, the ancient German tribes must have felt when they confronted the Romans. At first, it was when, like, when Caesar marched across the Rhine in uh, 57 or 56 BC, the Germans were terrified. Mass organize, organized uh, units just come in, just tear through them. They have no ability to organize resistance. They're living in little villages and they just get wrecked. A few year, a few decades go by and they start to organize themselves. And then they had the, the Varus battle, the Teutonburg Forest battle, and they beat the Romans. They killed, they destroyed three legions. Now the legions are not invincible. And then the barbarians know this and they start to get a feeling, you know what, maybe we could beat them. So this is the race war. And I want to read you um, a little bit from this last chapter here where Spangler talks about the race war. It's, uh, it's quite foreseeing. The barbarian attacks on the classical world began with the Celtic movements after 300 BC, which invariably had Italy as their objective. In this, the decisive battle of Sententium in uh, 295 BC, Gallic races supported the Etruscans and the Samnites against Rome, and they were also employed with success by Hannibal. About 280 BC, other Celts conquered Macedonia and northern Greece, where, in consequence of internal political struggles, all state power had ceased to exist and they were checked only at Delphi. In Thrace and Asia Minor, they founded barbarian empires over a Hellenized and partially Hellenic population. Somewhat later, in the east of Alexander the Great's decaying empire, the barbarian reaction against the Hellenistic culture set in, forcing it by innumerable insurrections to give ground step by step. Thus, from about 100 BC, of Mithridates, in alliance with the uh, Scythian and Bastarnized savages, and, in, and counting upon the ever-increasing determination of the Parthian Persians to push from eastern Iran towards Syria, had reasonable expectations of destroying the Roman state in the chaotic condition in which class wars had reduced it because of Marius and Sulla and, and all, the, all, all the dominance of the financial class, right? Not until it reached Greece was it, his advance stopped. Athens and other cities had joined him, as well as certain Celtic races, which were still established in Macedonia. In the Roman armies, there was open revolution. Individual sections fought against each other, and the commanders killed each other in the very presence of the enemy. Uh, and he gives the example of Fimbria, who uh, fought against Lucullus. It was then that the Roman army ceased to be a national body and transformed itself into a personal retinue of individuals. So soldiers were loyal to men like Marius and Sulla, not loyal to the state anymore, as, you know, reasonable. After 113 BC, there came the Celt-Germanic onset of the Cimbri and the Teutons, which was only repulsed after whole Roman armies had been wiped out by revolutionary leader Marius, and he again had just returned from his victory over Jugurtha, um, who had armed North Africa against Rome, and by bribing, the Roman politicians had for years prevented any counteraction. About 60 BC, there came a second Celtic-Germanic movement, the Suevi and the Helvati, uh, to forestall which Caesar conquered Gaul, and at the same time, Crassus was defeated and killed by the Parthians, Kaharai 53, uh, 53. But that was the end of the reaction by expansion. So, no longer, uh, this is me paraphrasing here, no longer could the Romans just make up for the financial problems within their society by expanding and conquering new peoples. And, you know, he goes on to give further examples. But all of this should sound very familiar. 
there's another part here that's a brief part that is worth reading goes into this craving for happiness and peace at the expense of of dignity honor and and greatness so a little bit later fast forwarding a bit that is what the craving for the peace of philadom for protection against everything that disturbs a daily routine against destiny in every form would seem to intimate a sort of protective mimicry vis-a-vis world history human insects feigning death in the face of danger the happy ending of an empty existence the boredom of which has brought in jazz music and negro dancing to perform the death march of a great culture so lol right that's it's a pretty stinging read of what's going on then and and to a greater extent now but that's the crucial difference here between the two types how do you fight against this how do you fight against the financial dominance of the society and bring yourself into the next stage bring yourself out of that stage of class war and race war against external groups and bring something else a a new regime that's possible Spengler's answer is what he calls Prussianism. And that's pretty much what I've been saying here with the idea of being in form and having race. More specifically, he calls it soul discipline. So this is why a great educational effort is essential, what I have called Prussianism, or what I've called Prussian, but which may, for all I care, call itself socialist, what's in a word? It must be education which rouses the sleeping energy, not by schooling, science, or culture, but by living example, by soul discipline, which fetches up what is still there, strengthens it, and causes it to blossom anew. We cannot permit ourselves to be tired. Danger is knocking at the door. The colored races are not pacifists. They do not cling to a life whose length is its sole value. They take up the sword when we lay it down. But there's another aspect to this as well. It's not just a matter for us of organization and and overcoming the organizational problem. And that's more of a practical thing that Spengler isn't really concerned with. He's concerned with really big picture spiritual development. Uh, It's the Jewish problem. And I don't think Spengler writing 100 years ago, I mean, from what I'm about to read you, he didn't. He didn't understand that Jews were going to be the dominant force in Western society, because in his time, there were still two possible counter elites, and that would be probably the the British aristocracy and the the German officer class. Now, as we all know, the German officer class was annihilated on the battlefield in World War Two for all intents and purposes, and the and its tradition no longer survives. And the British aristocracy had had a good run about 300 years of running an empire. But really, that's if you look historically, aristocracies don't tend to last more than about 300 years. It's very hard to keep a tradition going um, longer than that. And if you think from like the time of Elizabeth I to World War II, I mean, even that's kind of stretching it. With the fall of uh, with the fall of the empire and, and the end of the war, there's really no British aristocratic tradition anymore. Uh, you know, despite what you may have seen on TV, it's just a it's just a LARP. It's not real. There's nothing to it. So there's no one in the world today. There's no Aryan Faustian counter elite to stand against the Jews, uh, because that's how Spangler saw it playing out, that the Jews would essentially be 
outcompeted by the native elite once the native elite stood or was able to get up to the same level of philosophical development as the Jews. So here's the quote. Here's where he talks about this. Uh, it's at the very end of chapter nine of, of volume two. He says, today, this Magian nation, the Jews, with its ghetto and its religion, itself is in danger of disappearing, not because the metaphysics of the two cultures come closer to one another, for that's impossible, but because the intellectualized upper stratum of each side is ceasing to be metaphysical at all. The Jews have lost every kind of inward cohesion, and what remains is simply cohesion for practical questions. The lead that this nation has enjoyed from its long habituation to thinking in business terms becomes ever less and less, and with the loss of it, will go the last potent means of keeping up a consensus that has fallen regionally into parts. So in other words, American Jews do this, German Jews do this, British Jews do that. In the moment when the civilized methods of the European American world cities shall have arrived at full maturity, the destiny of Jewry uh, will be accomplished. So that's a polite way of saying the Jewish problem will be solved once all of the Western nations unite. Uh, I think he's overly optimistic there. I understand the argument he's making from a sort of the the view of the philosophical development of Jews and of Faustians that once we were at the same level of maturity, then the native culture, the Faustian culture will outcompete the, the intrusive Jews and they won't be able to to uh, compete anymore. But, you know, if you look around the world today, that clearly hasn't happened. And I think the reason it hasn't happened, one, is the extinction of the two, uh, the only two competing Aryan aristocracies, at least as of 1900 or 1930, the uh, the British and the German, but also, and, and concomitant with that, the destruction of our educational ability. That is our ability to produce new elites and to find people who have race, who uh, are intelligent and have um, that that nobility, that willingness to fight that I've been talking about, and to put them all together and whip them into form, make them into a team. We've lost that ability because Jews control our educational institutions and also Jews control our religious institutions and they control our media. So it's like almost as if the the nervous system of the Western civilization doesn't function. So in light of this Jewish issue, how is it possible to organize Faustian civilization, organize the people within our culture who have race and get them into form so that they can oppose international Jewish money power and bring our our culture into the next stage, our, our civilization into a stage where we have a unified regime, which is the only possible regime to follow the, the a financial plutocracy. We need an empire after the republic. There are, of course, many, many, many approaches to this. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I will say that Sp Spengler mentions Caesar's legions. I don't think any of us today could imagine, you know, the United States Army coming to our rescue or some uh, general riding in on a horse and, and leading a coup d'etat like that. That's so unimaginable, given the way the system is set up. You know, I, I talked about um, the fighting between the Roman armies in Asia in 
the 100s and 90s, the 80s BC, and we don't see anything like that. I mean, that in that regard, the Roman condition is very different from ours. Uh, we don't see individual uh, American military formations fighting one another. So it, obviously, we have to take this a little bit metaphorically and try to think, well, where what would be the Western civilization's analog to a Caesar's legion? Uh, we could think, you know, what other ways are there to organize a group of people? You have businesses, you have uh, religions, you have clubs, um, you know, political entities. There's there's different ways of doing it. But essentially, whatever it is, whatever form it takes, Spengler's opinion is that it has to find the people who have race and it has to give them a tradition, give them some means of conduct that they all understand with each other. And it has to, by exposing itself to external pressure, whip itself into form. Now, that's almost exactly what Hitler is saying in Mein Kampf. Now, so Spengler, I think, on a, a very different plane, a philosophical historical plane, would agree essentially with the methods outlined in Mein Kampf, particularly the ones that William and I have been talking about on some of our shows about how you build up a political organization, how you build a mass movement. Now, Spangler doesn't, of course, think that a mass movement is the only way to have Caesar's legion. You could have uh, a cult, perhaps, but I don't think you could have a religious cult. It would need to be, uh, in order to be in form, you would really need to be a pr an aggressive proselytizing religion, and you would need to face... Uh, uh, what sort of oppression you would need to face oppression from the system in order to find yourself to put yourselves into form and that's why i don't think a company like a great financial magnet like an elon musk or a uh, a, a former aristocrat politician like uh like kennedy uh robert kennedy uh jr why i don't think a man like that can be our caesar because he is not surrounded by the kind of people who have race. He's not surrounded by the fighting type of person because the business that he's engaged in is necessarily a little bit different. Uh, you might get some guys who are who are full of piss and vinegar, uh, lawyers, corporate lawyers who just love to go to the courtroom and fight other people. But that's not really it's not really quite the same. And you're, you're not really building a uh, uh, a political faction that could be used in the same way that a legion for Sulla could be used. So I want to round this out by just mentioning that, you know, we say, I say at the beginning of every podcast or most of them, I say, uh, bring you culture, whether you like it or not. And yeah, that, that is a bit tongue in cheek, but I do think that that conforms or gets at exactly what Spangler's talking about when he talks about, Prussian socialism. It's your duty, your racial, cultural duty to fight against financial power and against the Jewish dominance of our civilization. You can't get away from that. Part of becoming that sort of man that can actually fight these people and make them uncomfortable and make it difficult for them to continue controlling and oppressing our culture is to yourself acquire the culture of your past. It's not the only thing by any stretch of the imagination, but it is an important one to study what our great past leaders, particularly, and uh, and and soldiers have done, and our great 
you know, businessmen and philosophers and thinkers, men of thought and men of action, and to follow their example. You know, we might not today have a living example of someone, like Spangler says, a, a living example of someone who can show us soul discipline. But we do have in our very recent past people who can show us this, people like Hitler, people like George Lincoln Rockwell. So it's important to remember men like that, to never forget them, to hold them in your heart, and to try to be like them as much as you can. See you next time. Heil Hitler. Vorwärts, vorwärts, mit an die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Deutschland, du wirst leuchten stehen, mögen wir auch untergehen. Vorwärts, vorwärts, mit an die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Ist das Ziel auch noch so hoch? Kameraden, wir, unser Vater, lasst uns voran.